Welcome to The Lancet Podcast. This is Rebecca Cooney, North American Executive Editor, coming to you from New York. It's June 23rd, 2017, and at the close of yet another monumental and historic week. Led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Thursday, Senate Republicans released their highly anticipated version of a health care bill intended as an Affordable Care Act replacement. In this podcast, we talk with one of our special contributors and health policy expert, Dr. Adam Gaffney, to delve into some of the stipulations and implications of this very controversial bill. I am Adam Gaffney, and I am at Harvard Medical School. I'm an instructor in medicine. I'm at Cambridge Health Alliance, where I'm a practicing pulmonologist and critical care physician. And I'm very interested in health systems and health equity. Thank you so much for joining us again and talking about this big development. So against all the odds and, you know, what has been really a controversial writing process, this sort of cloak and dagger, closed door meetings, complaints by both Democrats and Republicans that there's just this level of secrecy that wasn't acceptable. We now have a draft version of what the Senate's attempt to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act in hand. And I think what's more, it now has its own name. In the House of Representatives version was called the American Health Care Act, the AHCA, but it's now been redubbed the Better Care Reconciliation Act of 2017. And I think it is fair to say that for the majority of Americans, people are not in support of the changes being proposed here. And that, that really, the even the title of this bill is a misnomer because it fundamentally is not designed to provide better care. So as a physician and as a proponent of health care reform and someone who does follow these developments really closely, before we get into some of the specifics and provisions that the bill contains, let's get your initial read on this. Is this better or worse than the bill pitched by the House? I would say that this bill is the Trump care that we've come to know, not know and love, but know. It is fundamentally fairly similar to the House bill. In some respects, it's watered down from the House bill. You know, I still think that doesn't make it any safer. As I've said, you know, you can't really water down cyanide <laughs> and, and expect it to be safe. But it does, in fact, weaken some of the aspects of the House bill. On the other hand, it's a bit harsher in other ways, particularly in its effect on the Medicaid program, which we can get into. But again, this is Trump care. This is the Trump care we've come to know. And I would say this, it shares more in common with the House bill than it differs. And I know that every outlet out there, news, political, medical, health, everyone is sort of providing their own breakdown of what the bill contains right now. And there's just some excellent comprehensive reportage out there. But I think given our international readership and listeners, I really wanted to focus on some of the big pieces and the ramifications of them that might be a little bit less obvious. First off, just kind of a snapshot assessment. My proposal is that this, and probably this is a pretty widely held view, that this bill is essentially a set of major tax breaks for the wealthy and then a fundamental overhaul, which might actually be too generous of a term. So maybe an underhaul of Medicaid. What's your assessment? I would agree with that. I mean, this bill is more about Medicaid and about tax cuts than it really is about the Affordable Care Act itself. I mean, one of the things that stayed basically identical between the House bill and the Senate bill are the tax breaks. And, you know, the House tax breaks were estimated at of $230 billion over 10 years for high-income earners and $144 billion for insurance companies, uh, $28 billion for, for pharmaceutical companies. And so the tax cuts are basically going to be the same. We don't have the score yet from the Congressional Budget Office, but we're looking at big tax breaks for the wealthy and for healthcare corporations. But in order to generate those kinds of tax breaks, you need to cut money from somewhere. 
hundreds of billions of dollars of tax breaks does not, as the saying goes, grow on trees. And the main source of those savings are going to be Medicaid cuts. So, you know, Medicaid, for your international listeners, is a federal state program signed by Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965 that provides a health insurance for people of low income, historically expanded by Obamacare. And this bill is really historic in reformatting, restructuring Medicaid, a program in which the federal government provides money to states as a sort of an open-ended entitlement in the sense that the more health care needs in the state, the more the, ha- the state spends on Medicaid, the federal government provides some level of support as spending goes up federal support goes up, which is, in my opinion, how it should be. Under the Republican bills, both bills, the House bill and the Senate bill, that federal contribution is capped. And it is capped in such a way that the rate of growth is going to be lower than the actual rate of growth of healthcare spending. So what that functionally means when you get down to it is a slow squeeze over time. I will say the Senate bill sinks its teeth more slowly at first. It sort of shrinks Medicaid expansion funding a little more slowly at first. But in the long run, it actually is even more deeper cuts under the Senate bill than the House bill as the rate of growth is dialed down beginning in 2025. So long story short, hundreds of billions of dollars of tax breaks over a decade. We're going to see main source of funding for those tax breaks is a historic reduction in Medicaid funding. So it's a real flashing of the healthcare safety net as we know it in the United States. And the consequences are remain to be seen. But if the Congressional Budget Office's scoring of the House bill is any indication, we're going to see millions of people pushed out of the program as a result. So, and I want to perseverate a little bit about the notion of this being Medicaid cuts because, and it, predictably, this has, I've already seen, I know Kellyanne Conway said something about that these are not cuts. I've heard some really sort of nonpartisan assessments of that these are not cuts. And so I think it's important, especially for international li- listeners, to kind of quantify what we're talking about here. And that is that it's really about this notion of curtailing or reining in spending on Medicaid is what this bill is designed to do. But in essence, the way that they are proposing to change the the payouts to states would force those states at a certain point to make budgetary cuts to Medicaid programs. And I think it's really kind of an equivocation of not calling these cuts, but the cuts will happen at some point. It's just that this bill sort of dances around that a little bit. Yeah, there's no real honest way to say that this law is not a cut of Medicaid. The Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan agency that scores these bills, estimates the cuts over a decade at around $830 billion. And as you said, you can't cut that level of funding out of a program without functionally shrinking the program. Now, what is that going to mean, practically speaking? Well, it will mean that states are getting less money from the federal government for their Medicaid program, and they will have to make hard choices. Some of the more wealthy states may be able to get by and be able to keep enrollment higher than some of the poorer states. But at the end of the day, choices will need to be made. Um, and those choices are either going to involve reducing the number of people in the program, reducing program benefits, reducing reimbursements to providers, You know, which might mean that you shrink the number of people who actually are available to see these patients. So 
one way or the other, you take $830 billion out of a program and it's going to get smaller. You don't need to be a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist to come to that conclusion. Given what we know from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, it's really disingenuous to claim that this is not going to shrink the program. It's not going to shrink it right away. It's not going to suddenly reduce it. But over time, over a decade, the program spending is going to be reduced as compared to what it would be under current law. And if that's not a reduction, I don't know what it is. I want to also explore that idea a little bit about the interplay between this is a federal bill, obviously, and that but it affects individual states. I've also heard it be painted in the sense of that this would give new flexibility to states to sort of administer and distribute funds that are in a more flexible way for their needs. But I think alternatively, for those of us who are less inclined to see it that way, is that it's the federal government essentially promoting inequities by not continuing to tailor Medicaid, which is an entitlement program, to the actual needs of states. And where we're really going to see this come to play, for example, is with opioids. And for some states where the opioid epidemic is, is a much bigger problem, not having that sort of fundamental, you know, escalation of federal funding to tackle public health challenges as they come along is sort of a recipe for creating new inequities. Exactly right. I mean, that's the fundamental problem with a block grant or a per capita cap, which are the two ways that Medicaid will be funded under the new law. Something comes along an opioid crisis, the AIDS crisis, what public health disaster is going to come next? It will be something. And the states won't have more money to deal with those problems as needs go up. So there's going to be a disconnect between healthcare needs and healthcare spending and healthcare funding. And that is going to exacerbate exactly, as you said, the inequities that are already here and that are already pernicious and that we should be doing more to do to address rather than less. And this notion, I think, of leave it to the states, they can know their populations best, I also think is somewhat disingenuous. You know, no, we're not, obviously each state has its unique healthcare needs, but reducing federal support for states is not really giving them more flexibility. It's giving them less flexibility. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of Orwellian language and discourse that's going on now in terms of the way that flexibility is being used as a stand-in for um, austerity. And that's something that I think, again, an international audience will be quite familiar with because this is not just a United States phenomenon. Right. So another area where I think this kind of reading between the lines comes along is about some of the essential health benefits issues. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how things stand under the Affordable Care Act and what sort of the situation is that would be set up by the Senate bill. Right. And this is an area that we haven't spoken about so far. We've talked about the Medicaid reductions and we talked about tax breaks, but there's a whole other part of Obamacare, of the Affordable Care Act, and that is the so-called Obamacare plans. So, you know, the United States unlike many other high-income countries, does not have a universal public program. And Obamacare aimed to fix that in part through an expansion of Medicaid, but in part through creating new private plans that would be subsidized and sold on marketplaces. And it regulated those plans and required that they include 10 essential health benefits, things like hospitalizations, maternity care, such that insurers couldn't, you know, sell these skimpy plans that are sort of useless. It tried to create a new marketplace of subsidized plans that covered comprehensive needs. I think it fell short in many ways, separate issue. But this has come under sustained and quite vehement attack from the right. They view these regulations as a sort of impinging on 
on people's freedom to purchase the Klan they want and that they need, and they think that it's driving up premiums, which is to some extent true. If you're going to require plans to cover things like medicines, it would be more expensive than if you just, you know, didn't have to cover medicines. But that's obviously not a solution. The Republicans and the conservatives in particular have wanted to get rid of these regulations. They think it would drive premiums down. The House bill let this, the states do this. to let them seek waivers that health plans didn't need to cover all the essential health benefits. It allowed states to seek waivers to charge more to people who have pre-existing conditions. The Senate bill does one of those, but not the other. The Senate bill allows states to seek waivers, slightly different legislative pathway, but the big picture is the same, allows states to seek waivers that would allow health insurers to not cover all the benefits that Obamacare does. And so what is that going to do? It is going to lead us down a road, in my opinion, towards skimpier health insurance plans that cover less and that also have a lower actuarial value, meaning that they cover a lower percentage of somebody's health care spending, somebody's health care costs. So it's, you know, from their perspective, this will lower premiums. But from those of us who are critical of that approach, it will maybe lower premiums, but only by creating increasingly worthless health care plans. And that's a big part of this bill. Conservatives are not happy, actually, with this bill. They wanted to do more to scale back those regulations. And many of us are critical that this is actually further weakening uh, people's health care coverage. And we'll see where that goes. Right. Okay. So that, I think that's the perfect lead up to kind of set the stage for this next pass. So what are we to expect, like, in the next couple of weeks, do you think, with this? Well, if you listen to Mitch McConnell, you know, he wants to push ahead very rapidly with this. He is hoping to have this go to the White House before July 4th recess. Whether that's possible remains to be seen. You know, just yesterday, as soon as the bill came out, four senators voiced opposition to it from the the Republican side, saying that they wanted to see things change. And the only two senators can vote against this bill for it to pass. So the margin of victory is narrow. But that being said, I do not find this very reassuring. I think that they're probably angling for a slightly better deal. We saw in the House that the conservatives held out and ultimately got more of what they want. I suspect that we're going to see something else in this bill, that the holdouts will get some more concessions and will come to a vote. The next week will be very telling. Monday, the Congressional Budget Office is going to release its scoring of the bill. I think that will have a big effect in terms of the discourse around it. How many people will be uninsured? What will it do to the deficit? How much will it reduce Medicaid by? We will know all of that by Monday, and that is going to affect the debate. But I am getting increasingly wary that this bill is going to pass in the Senate, and if it does, we know that it will go back to the House and they'll have to reconcile the differences between them. It's still a long road. There's still a lot of obstacles ahead for Republicans, but you know, with each passing day uh, and with each sort of progress on, in terms of new legislation, I'm getting more and more worried that we're going to see this bill get passed. I should say that people are organizing very strenuously in the grassroots level to try to resist this, to push senators to vote no. Whether they will have enough power and allowed enough voice to do so remains to be seen. Right. And and I think that is a super important point, is this issue that you have sort of this very small cabal of people who are driving these discussions and negotiations in a non-transparent way when you have the absolute bulk of the medical establishment and health advocacy groups and everyone aligned against this. And it is, I think when you put it that way, it is a pretty sobering and startling time to kind of, to see what happens here. So obviously we will be following along and on tenter hooks as well. I hope that we can catch up with you once we know where this is headed. Absolutely. Thank you for having me back and we will see where things go. Thank you for listening. 
until next time.